I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a Driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths people take in life. It is finally here, the final episode of the 2016 Half Hour Intern Awards, which serendipitously happens to be the final episode of 2016 as a whole. And thank you all so much for supporting the show and listening to the show in 2016. It means so much to me, and uh, 2016 has been such an awesome, fun year for me, thanks to this show and thanks to all of you. So thank you, thank you, thank you. On to the awards for the final episode. The first award that we'll be giving out is the Best Story Award. So I will be playing clips from the two stories that were nominated for Best Story, and then I will announce the winner afterwards that you guys have chosen as the Best Story of 2016. So the first nominee is from the Spearfishing episode, and this is Turbo of uh, of Shrek and Turbo, the duo that was on the episode. So this is Turbo telling a story about uh, one of his earlier experiences out spearfishing, and he ended up getting yanked way out deep in to the ocean by this fish that ended up dying and he was like a mile or two out to shore spilled a lot of blood in the water and then had to swim all the way in just with all this blood all around him only to find out that there were sharks around him while he was swimming in with this bloody fish so here is that story i've sort of had one of those experiences and they're quite exciting yeah but, but when i was quite green and and my first step up from like a, a hand spear I, uh, I I bought what we call a European gun, and this is a beautiful gun, you know, with a handle and a trigger and a nice spear, and uh, and it has a reel on it. So if a big fish runs, the reel on the bottom of the gun spools out, and you can sort of get to the surface and follow that fish around on the surface. It actually tows you on the surface. Now, now that's, you know, for quite big fish, and I was quite new to this sport, and I sort of got in the water one day, and... Um, and we have a fish here and you, that we call a Spanish mackerel. And in, in the US, you call it a king mackerel. And, uh, and I was on the bottom sitting there quite stealthy. I'd, I was holding what we call a static breath hold. So I dived to the bottom. I'd held my breath. I was sitting lifeless on the bottom with my head down, looking through the tops of my goggles so that the fish couldn't see my eyes. That's quite important. And this Spanish mackerel swims up to me out of the murk. And I thought, oh, my God, have a look at that. It's pretty big. Yeah, I'll take it. So... I pulled the gun up and I shot the fish in the gill plate, which is a great holding shot. It means a fish will never get away. Just just behind the gill plate anyway. And um, and and the fish didn't even react to the shot. Like it was a big <laughs> fish, didn't react to the shot. So I thought, I'm going to swim over. It must be dead. I'll, I'll take it in my hands and I'll swim it to the surface. Yes. And as I've swum to it, it's gone, oh, hang on. There's something not right here. And it has just gone ballistic and it has just put the power down and this fish has just gone for the horizon i guess you could speak straight straight offshore with me and i was short of him no boat no safety nothing by myself quite foolish and this thing has just gone at a hundred miles an hour and at that point i realized the size of this fish and my reel and and because i was new i'd bought a, a plastic reel quite cheap and the reel as i was running the line was actually burning burning a hole in the line guide because it was just running so fast underwater it was just cutting through it and so I, I grabbed the line with my gloves. I had, you know, neoprene gloves. 
I grabbed the line with my gloves. Another mistake. So this line is running so hard that it's just cut straight through neoprene gloves because it's quite abrasive. And, and it's just it's kind of burning my skin and cutting it underwater. And I thought, holy moly, what is going on here? So, you know, it's time to come up for air. So I've, I've kicked to the surface. The reel's running at 100 miles an hour. I can't stop it. I eventually sort of swim towards it and lock it off around my hand. And then that's, that's when it really hit. Because I was attached directly to the fish with no drag, I'm now the drag. And I've gone from sitting still in the water to doing maybe like four or five knots through the water and I put my head up and I've got this kind of like a bow wave and when I put my head down, it felt like the mask was going to get ripped off my face, you know. Yeah. And this, I'd gone from shooting, you know, two-pound fish to this monster. I mean, it was 20 kg, so what's that, four fifty pound maybe? Uh, yeah, like 50 pound. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and, you know, eventually we're out in dirty water and, this thing, as it's tying, it's circling, and I've pulled it up once. It's kicked free again. I've pulled it up second time. It's kicked free again. And finally, I've got it up, you know, got it in my hands, and, and I've, I've put, like, the rear naked choke on it because with a big fish, you know, you've got to get your legs it's around like it. like a WWE star. Yeah, man, and you're, you're hugging this thing, and you've, I've put the knife in it, and, you know, it's quite personal spearfishing, and I've put the knife in it, and I've, I've, I've brained it, and this, this blood's come out, and it's still sort of kicking. I couldn't get it, so... You know, early days I've had to cut the throat. Not best practice, but they, they die quickly anyway. But it's put a lot of blood in the water. And then I've looked at the shore and I've realised, oh, hang on, I'm 600 metres offshore. Oh, you just spilled <laughs> blood all this freaking water. blood out in the water. Half, half a mile offshore. <laughs> oh, half a mile God. offshore. There's all this blood in the water. You know, what now? So, you know, man, that, that period of swimming offshore, onshore with blood in trail was like one of the most nerve-wracking um, what we call noob moments or new moments to the sport I've ever had. And yeah. as I got in, my mate comes in off the rocks. I'm sitting on the rocks, you know, chest heaving. And my <laughs> mate my mate walks up and he goes, good fish, man. I said, what did you get? And he said, I shot two fish, but the sharks came in and shredded them off the end of the spear. Oh, my <laughs> <I> said, God. <laughs> he said, I can't believe you got that in through the bull sharks. <laughs> I can't believe you didn't leave it behind, like just <laughs> thinking that that might happen. Once again, it's like it's you go to the effort, you go to the challenge, you put yourself up against everything, yeah. and, and you come away with it. And it's like, am I really going to give away my food, like my dinner, and everything I've done to get this to another yeah. predator in the ocean? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, not. and when it when the challenge is on, it's like it's you, shark, or it's me. And and sometimes you know you think you can, I guess, uh, intimidate them to a degree, and then other times. They're all over it, and you've just got to go, all right, have the fish, you win. Yeah. But uh, on that day, I, I was just so excited and stoked that I just thought, no, no, I'm, I'm going to win this battle. <laughs> I love that story, and it's so funny to me how Turbo says, you know, it's like, it was my lunch or it was the shark's lunch, and I just wasn't going to let the shark have it. Like, that's that's so crazy to me. Like, let the shark have it. I cannot imagine thinking to myself, yep, yeah, I'm definitely going to keep this fish from this shark. Like, I would have ditched that fish so quickly, but I guess that's why I'm just a big wuss and I'm not a uh, spear fisherman like Turbo is. So anyways, on to the other nominee for best story. This is Flight Attendant with Corinne Ryan, where she tells a story about the plane losing cabin pressure after takeoff. Okay, Blake, are you ready for story time? Because I got a funny story about this. Yes, please. Okay. So um, we, on some of our older planes, we have to actually do the demonstration where you see us put on the silly life vest and the, the, you know, show you how to buckle your seatbelt, which everybody laughs at, you know, whatever. And three quarters of the time, nobody's paying attention. 
I mean, and the other quarter of the time, maybe 10% of the people are paying attention. Mm -hmm. We know that nobody's watching. It's a requirement, you know, whatever. I do encourage you at some point to read the safety card in the seat back pocket. There is some good information. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But hopefully you'll never have to use it, right? So New Year's Day, New Year's Eve, I laid over in Indianapolis. New Year's Day, get on our flight. Um, It's one of our older planes, and I'm working the number four position. So I'm assisting in main cabin, but our lead flight attendant is the one that does the whole safety demonstration PA. So she's the one talking on it, and I'm the one acting out the whole thing up in first class. Uh, Full plane. um, Nobody's paying attention. Everybody's, you know, pretending they're not texting and talking on their phone. They're, you know, all setting up their movies, paying attention to kids, whatever. So we do our demo, put our demo stuff away, we take off, and the plane never pressurizes. I pray that you never have to experience that type of pain. So the rapid, you know, rapid um, elevation change creates incredible sinus and ear pressure. That is why we pressurize the plane. I could only, yeah, like sometimes when you're, I mean, I shouldn't say sometimes, all the time when you're just driving up a mountain, like a mountain road, um, Uh that happens like you know, tangibly just driving up a mountain road. I can't imagine flying and having it not pressurized. Right. So in, you know, whatever, two or three minutes, we increased 10, 11, I think we got up to 13,000 feet and the pilot um, radioed us back and said, um, we're going to have an emergency landing. The plane is fine. Um, The cabin is not pressurizing. We're, you know, we're dropping as low as we can, but you know, we're very, you know, the plane is fine. The plane is fine. He kept saying that, which was wonderful. He was a great captain. If I had to do it all again with anybody, I would, I would want him a thousand times. So, um, plane never pressurizes. Wait, Corinne, I have to interject here. <laughs> How the hell did, like, why did they take off in the first place? Don't you like wait to see if it pressurizes before you take they, off? They go through all the checks, but it's something that doesn't start working until the pressure starts increasing. Oh. So. So it's one of those things that, and, and it's an automatic. So most things on the plane have like an automatic feature and then a redundant manual feature. So it was one of those things that we they could do manually, but they didn't realize that the automatic was broken. Does yeah. that make sense? Yeah. So um, so they were they were trying to adjust it, you know, manually plus you know decrease the actual plane altitude, get it down to a comfortable position. So. In the meantime, this is New Year's Day. We have lots of families traveling. Um, you know, babies are screaming all oh, over the place. It say, was the this, baby situation. Oh, man. It was so sad. I mean, grown ass man, like alligator tears streaming down his face. I felt horrible for him. I had another couple. It was their very first flight ever. And they're like, get me off this plane. I'm never flying again. I mean, it was, I laugh about it now because obviously everything was okay, but the pain is, I mean, you might as well stick ice picks in your eyes because I don't, I don't know what else is comparable. Anyway, get the plane on the ground. Um, everything's fine. Um, they, they do all the checks and everything cannot make that, that feature work again, the automatic feature work again. The captain said, um, we can't, so the, the manual switch is working. We can make it work manually. So three hours later, we load the same plane with half the passengers and tell them everything that's going on. This is what happened. You know, same plane, everything's going to be fine. So our safe back to the safety demo, safety demo. The second time I had every eye on that stinking plane <laughs> glued to me. They're like, uh-huh, uh-huh. Anything you say, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. Anything. <laughs> it was so 
hilarious. And I couldn't help but laugh. And I made fun of all of them and, you know, kind of lightened the mood a little bit. But it's like, oh, yeah, you're paying attention now. Huh? I thought you were going to die last time. It's funny. I've taken a lot of flights since I did that interview with Corinne. And there's so many things on that episode that I think back to now whenever I am taking a flight. And that story in particular, I always think about when we're taking off. And I'm like praying that we don't lose cabin pressure so I never have to experience that. And then I also think to myself, if we were to lose cabin pressure, if something bad were to happen on this plane and we were forced to land... Would I pay any more attention to the flight attendant when they gave the safety briefing the second time? I like pause for a second. And every time I'm just like, eh, nah, I don't think so. I think I'd probably ignore him just the same as I always did. Um, regardless, such a great story of Corinne's. I love it. And that is, in fact, who you guys voted as the 2016 best story of the year. So congratulations to Corinne. On to the awards for Best Advice. The first nominee for Best Advice is Street Artist with Cameron Moberg. So this is the end of Cameron's episode during the advice portion. And he just gives the most beautiful advice about working really hard and how important that is and how you should respect and enjoy the idea of working hard. And he then transitions into um, just loving people more and loving your work more and loving everything with an open heart. It's just a really, really beautiful way to end the episode. So here is that advice from Cameron. I would say the biggest thing is work hard, whether that's practicing and painting or whether that's networking and building something. But like, I just feel, man, there's such a, there's just something that's um, controlling this, this generation right now, man. And, and, people in life it's this sense of entitlement and that everything should come easy and man that's such a lie you know like don't look at work as something that is is bad like look at it as an adventure and look at it as something as a place to go so that life doesn't get boring <laughs> and uh, like i think if we if we look at life that way and work that way it 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 just creates a desire to want to progress and have fun while we're doing it, you know? So I would, I would say that's the biggest thing is just work hard, challenge yourself. And, but at the same time, never take it too seriously, you know? Yeah. Um, so that's, I think that's a big thing, man. And just, I would say just love more, you know, love, love people, respect people, love what you're doing, respect what you're doing. Um, and and life life can be good man <laughs> all right on to the second nominee for best advice it is travis sigley from the cuddle therapy episode it is uh very short and sweet and beautiful advice so uh i'll just cut right to it at the at the end of the day and at the essence of of, of all of this like if it's somebody you're already cuddling with and have kind of a cuddly relationship with just just do it more <laughs> and and be really comfortable with it and and like the more time you spend and the more rapport you build with your friends in this way, the, the easier it'll be for both of you, like between each other and the easier, um, hopefully it'll be with other people too. And, and kind of give you this, this link of support within your friendship to be able to talk about these things with other people and, and just provide practice, like practice in touching and practice in relating really authentically and openly. And, and that's what we all need a lot more of is just practicing these things. 
And the final nominee for Best Advice comes from Michael Gorgian from the author episode. And Michael actually already won an award on the Half Hour Intern Awards for Most Inspirational. This comes from a follow-up interview that Michael and I did after his book was released where we talked about him being an author. And at the end, he gives some wonderful advice about treating your work um, as a sacred thing and taking it really seriously. I found that talking about it to other people can disperse the energy that can go towards the creation itself. That often we go, oh, I'm writing this book and I and I and I want to tell you and I st-. and and that kind of satiates the part of me that could actually the energy that could go to the accomplishment itself. Um, there's a in today's environment where we share everything and we you know here's an update of this and that and I feel like the concept of sacredness has slipped away. And I think if you bring that into your work, and uh, perhaps if you're writing a book or whatever, um, making it a sacred thing, which is you don't just chat about it, gossip about it. You don't allow it to lower down from the place that it belongs, which is you treat it seriously, I guess. Um, so I, I found that that just allows it, allows creating something, whatever it is, to rise up and be more, uh, have more value. You treat it that way, and the likelihood of moving forward with it uh, goes up. So that would be my advice. Great advice there by Michael. And as I say, actually, right after that clip, like right after I cut that clip there, I say in the episode, and I still think whenever I hear that clip about how much I struggle with the concept of what he is saying there about treating your work sacred and not going and just like running your mouth about it to everyone. And at the same time, having accountability. And, uh, you know, they say that you should tell people about your goals so that way you're kind of being held accountable for them. And we actually talk about that afterwards. And in that episode, there's a lot of good philosophical discussion like that. So if you enjoy stuff like that, I highly recommend checking out that episode if you have not had a chance to listen to it. Um, That's enough advertising for my own show while I'm uh, doing the awards. So anyways, the winner for best advice is actually a tie. We had a dead even tie in votes between Cuddle Therapy with Travis Sigley, an author with Michael Gorgian. So you guys love to cuddle. You guys love to treat your work sacred. I love all of that. Um, Thank you so much for your votes. And on to the final category, which is favorite episode of the year. So this one is a little bit different than the others. In this one, there were no actual nominees. You guys had to fill in the blank and just write what your favorite episode is for the year. So I don't know if you guys listened to the second episode of the Half Hour Intern Awards, but in that episode, I mentioned that every single person got votes in the uh, in all of the categories thus far. In favorite episode, it was incredibly interesting. We had 18 different episodes from the year get nominated for favorite episode of the year, which is so awesome to me. Like, I can't tell you how happy that makes me that it's not just like, oh, that was for sure the best episode, that, that everyone kind of has their own opinion and their own thing that they are drawn to and their own pieces of advice that they enjoy, um, their own stories that they like, their own people that, that just they feel connected to. So out of the 18 people that we had, there were a couple that got more votes than the others. One 
got way more votes than anything else. But I'm going to be playing two favorite episodes of the year. Uh, the one that got way more votes than anything else is Teen Volunteer Abroad with Jack Paquette. And if I had to guess, knowing Jack, who, uh, if you listen to the Teen Volunteer Abroad episode, he needed to raise money to be able to go abroad and help people. And he is such a resourceful young man and raised all this money um, so that he could go and help people. Anyways, being such a resourceful, awesome kid, I would have to imagine that Jack used some of his resources to just get, like, his entire town to vote for his episode or something. Not that, by the way, not to say that it isn't an awesome episode. It is a fantastic episode. Um, But Jack just crushed the rest of the episodes in voting. It it was honestly incredible, the number of votes that came pouring in for Jack. It was was really, really heartwarming and awesome. So um, I will be playing a clip for that. And then after that, I will be playing a clip for Street Artist with Cameron Moberg, which was second place in votes, and an episode that I absolutely loved, an interview that I absolutely loved doing, so I understand why you guys voted for it as well. It was absolutely fantastic. So I'll be playing one clip from Jack's episode. Right after that, I will go ahead and go into the clips from the Street Artist with Cameron Moberg episode. Um both just such great people jack and cameron and i'm so happy that this is who you guys voted um they're both very inspirational and um without further ado here are your favorite episodes of 2016 so the first being um the father's house which is a which is a home for boys who have been trafficked and the owner of the father's house jeremiah has paid to get these kids out of the human trafficking business so that they can go to school and have a life out of outside of being forced to be fishermen. So, so while, that's what they're trafficked for? I, I think usually with human trafficking, people always think of girls, or in the sake of Africa, might maybe they think of boys to be trafficked to um, just be part of some like militant gang or something to have like more foot soldiers on the ground, but they, they kidnap boys to make them fishermen? Yeah, so uh, what happens is that, uh, is that uh, the fishermen go, go, to the, uh, go to the houses and they say, hey, well... Um, We'll teach we'll teach your uh, child child a trade so so that so that he can come back and and uh, g- give your family money and uh, the sad part is that uh, that most of the, most of the kids never come back because they're in the human trafficking business now and and they're uh, being sold to uh, the highest bidder and they become uh, and they become fishermen uh, so, uh, so one of the one of the um, one of the kids that I met was was a four, uh, was a four year old and and usually um usually the four year olds uh, their job is to is to have little buckets and uh, and get the wa- get the water out of out of the boats as as they uh, fish and when when uh, so after after we were told about uh, the father's house and and Jeremiah sat sat down with us. Uh, and told us about the history of the father house. Uh, we played we played games with um with the kids with the kids there. So we played uh, like soccer and stuff and stuff like that. And um, I I really be- I really made a connection with uh, with this boy. And uh, and when uh, I was told that I had to go, uh, he he wrapped on he wrapped he wrapped onto my legs and said, "Please don't go." And uh, and as I was sh- trying to walk. He uh, uh, he would he just uh, clung on to my clung on to my legs and and uh, and he just walked with me onto my legs. 
Man, I, I just grew up drawing. And honestly, like, I was never a naturally good artist. Um, you know, and I, I go talk to a, a, a lot of different schools and kids and stuff. And I always share old pictures of my old art so that they can see that it's taken over 20 years to get where I'm at, you know, um, and, and just encourage them to work hard, you know. But, you know, so I, I was just like addicted to drawing mostly because I wasn't good at it. And it felt like this like video game that I could never accomplish, you know, and you know, when you play that video game and you just can't pass this one boss and you just become <laughs> so addicted to it. That's how it was for me, you know? And so I just practiced and practiced, man. I was drawing everything like in my room. I remember being a little kid, I'd have like a teddy bear or a model car and I would turn it in different directions and just try to draw it. Um, or sit in front of my, you know, 85 year old grandma and try to draw like all the wrinkles in her forehead and stuff, you know? Uh, but then in fifth grade, my brother gave me a graffiti magazine and I had seen graffiti before I grew up in, you know, into the things of hip hop. Like I, I, I knew about breakdancing. I liked it. I liked the music and DJing and stuff. Um, but with graffiti, my scope was very limited until my brother gave me this magazine in like 1991 or 92, where it was just insane, you know? And, and for me, it was the first time that color just exploded um, because I am colorblind or color deficient. And so certain colors I can't see or it muddies things, but with graffiti or street art, it was like so rich and vivid and it was taking all these objects and, and allowing them to have movement and flow across the wall. And so in fifth grade, I was just instantly like, dude, this is the art I want to do for the rest of my life. And so I just started drawing everybody's names. Like, what's your name? I'm going to draw it. You know, what's your name? I'm going to draw it. <laughs> That's you know? cool, and that kind of went through all the way through middle school. And then in ninth grade, that's when I kind of started tagging around San Francisco, just running around the streets, kind of getting in, into trouble. And, you know, I really wanted like a mentor at that time, somebody that knew how to use a can because I didn't know anybody. But it was this weird middle stage in graffiti where the guys before me were all really well recognized and there was nobody after them that was like really, really good around my age that could kind of like, um, that I could learn from, you know? So I was just trying to figure it out and did that through high school and just, yeah, just was tagging around the city, man. Dude, and then the rest is history. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, um, that's so cool. And that's so great. How you, how it went now when you're doing your outreach and stuff that you try to show kids your old drawings, because I think as a kid, so much of the time, you know, people are are slightly more talented at certain things you know like some kid in yeah. your class is is like pretty good at basketball and then some kid in your class is pretty good at art and whatever it is yeah and so like i remember growing up just thinking like oh well i'm never going to be as good as that kid like yeah. because because that's the kid that's good at art like that's the kid that's good at basketball and the idea of just practice and repetition and i think yep. really particularly with something like art doesn't yeah. occur to people as something that um 
that gets you good at it. It's like, you know, the nature of art makes people think like, oh, you're good at art because you're good at art. You know, like Mm -hmm. if it was all rigid and about a bunch of practice, then it wouldn't be art anymore. But just because you have to practice a bunch doesn't mean it's not art. Yeah, yeah, it's it's totally not the case. Yeah, repetition is so key. And that's that's with anything. And unfortunately, kids now, all they see are highlight reels on on YouTube or Instagram. It's like, I've edited this down to the best of everything I've done. So they assume that everybody's automatically good at something, right? And it's just not the case. I mean, it's take after take, repetition after repetition, and it's it's hard work, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and, and that's what makes it fun, you know? Like if if we were automatically good at something, that really gets boring quick, you know? Like we like challenges as human beings, so let's challenge ourselves and let's try the next thing and let's try to get better. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's that's the case. I mean, you think of like writing your name as a kid. Everything was on a line, right? And you would trace that C over and over in kindergarten and first grade, right? And that's the same thing with art. It's like, you're going to draw this until you get it, until you figure it out, no matter how many years it takes, you know? Yeah. So what is it that draws you to street art as a medium? That is a great question. And I love talking about that. (laughs) Uh, There's, okay, so there's the initial thing that attracted me was just the vividness and the color uh, and the movement, right? That was what attracted me as a kid. Now, I grew up completely immersed in the hip-hop culture, um, and graffiti is a big part of that. So secondary to the the color choice and, and the vividness was the story. And so seeing what the Bronx went through even though you know we we contribute our first graffiti writer to being in Philadelphia, it really blew up in in New York. And when you look at the story of New York and what was happening in the seventies and how the whole white flight thing happened and all these building owners owners couldn't get renters into their property, so they all burnt down their buildings for insurance money. And if you look at the photos of the sixties and the seventies. And you see these 11, 12, 13-year-old kids living in rubble like a third-world country. And then out of that, just needing to express themselves and needing to put that energy into something. And you see one of the most revolutionary art forms, um, not just graffiti art, but you see this most revolutionary culture that has affected our world in such a huge way right now being birthed out of poverty and just like, I need to do something great right now. And then these little kids, man, created this out of nothing, you know? So that is what attracts me to it is the story behind it. That is Um, beautiful, man. That's awesome. Yeah, dude. It's, it's such a great story. And, and then now that I know how to do it, um, what keeps me attracted to it is, Two things. One is that it, the possibilities are limitless. It is there is never-ending possibilities when it comes to ideas and creating, right? And so I am just so attracted to like not even just working with other graf- 
graffiti writers or street artists, but like, how can I take this and work with um, software engineers or other type of creatives to even break outside of everything that's happening there? Um, but when it comes to my murals in particular, I think the thing I love the most is the process. Um, and when you're painting using spray paint, it's the only median that you can stretch a line from one end of the wall all the way to the other end of the wall in a matter of seconds, you know, or you're standing up tall and you need to do an outline that reaches all the way to the bottom. So you're literally doing a lunge and then moving your body to the left in a matter of seconds. So it really feels like Tai Chi or something. Mm. And so like, there's so much physical, you know, there's this huge physical aspect going into your art. And that is like one of the biggest things I love. Like there's no other art form that you feel your energy and your body going into it, you know, where I love painting a canvas and I have fun doing it, but you're very limited in your movement and you have to constantly dip your brush and you're only moving your hand, you know? Whereas, man, you give me a spray can and I just go nuts. Like, <laughs> I'm running around, climbing ladders, doing lunges. Like, yeah, it just feels so good, man. So that is it. Those are your favorite episodes of 2016. Any of those episodes, any of the nominees, you can go back and listen to at any time. The whole library of Half Hour Intern episodes is available on whatever podcasting platform you listen on. Um, tell a friend, subscribe, download, do all that good stuff. This is the final episode of 2016. Thank you so much for making the show what it is, you guys. And uh, cheers to uh, 17 and the amazing year that we will have next year and the amazing interviews that we will do and the amazing things that we will learn. I will be back next week with some brand new episodes for you guys. Thank you so much. I love you. Goodbye. Goodbye.